So 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then from Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would now focus and lead our hearts and our minds as we meditate together on your word. You know the ways that each one of us needs to hear from you right now. And so we pray that, that you, through your Spirit, would speak to us, help us, and change us for your glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, last week we had the unique privilege of gathering together for corporate worship on Christmas Day. And today, uh, the unique privilege of gathering on New Year's Day. Even though some of you are sleepy, it's a privilege to gather on New Year's Day. God created us for a life of seasons, a life of rhythm. And so a new year provides us with a sense of closure to what is past and anticipation for what is to come. And it provides us with an opportunity for us to reflect on life, to reflect on our lives individually, on perhaps changes or improvements that are needed in our life. So each year about 50% of the U.S. population make New Year's resolutions. Robbie mentioned uh, that practice earlier. Kids, if you're unfamiliar with it, a New Year's resolution is a commitment that people make around New Year's time, a commitment to do something consistently for the entire year or to not do something for an entire year. And so for one year, they seek to live by that resolution. And the top three resolutions, they're very similar from year to year. Number three, to spend less, so financial resolution. Number two, to get organized. And number one, you already know it, you're already thinking it, to lose weight, to lose weight or to get healthy. Uh, these resolutions, and many like them, can be extremely good and helpful. God's Word is not in conflict with making resolutions that are apart from spiritual matters because God's Word speaks directly into those very kinds of things, speaks directly into how we spend our money, speaks clearly into how we plan for the future in life, speaks clearly about how our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit are to be treated and honored in important ways and cared for. 
But God's word places a higher value, a higher premium on another type of resolution. Think of 1 Peter or 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 and 8 where Paul tells Timothy, "Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way." In the biblically, biblical economy of commitments, it is godliness that takes first place. It's godliness that's to be our highest priority, and we should pursue it just as much and more than our physical or financial well-being. 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12, we have an ethical passage in which Peter commend, commands us to pursue a specific type of of godliness. It says pursue godliness in two specific ways. Number one, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And number two, keep your conduct honorable. Because we live in a fast-paced, goal-oriented society, it would be easy for us to simply take in those commandments, adopt them as resolutions, and go and practice them. But if you have ever tried abstaining from the passions of the flesh in a serious way, if you've ever tried to keep your conduct honorable and not let any of that dishonorable stuff come out, then you know that obeying these commandments is no easy task. It's not easy. It's, it's hard. And so this morning what I want us to do is to take kind of a scenic route towards these commandments, to take the back roads instead of the tollway, and to explore a story which helps us think about our approach to obeying God's Word and God's commandments. It's a story that we read from the Gospel of Mark. How we approach God's commandments, the imperatives of Scripture, how we approach them is crucial for us. What's our motivation going into it? What's the story of our lives going into it, and how do we pursue the obedience and faithfulness to God's commandments? So the story in Mark shapes our approach to these commands in a surprising way, not by taking us down an inspiring path of Peter's dramatic faithfulness, but by taking us down the path of Peter's unfaithfulness, of his zealous resolution to, to never fall away. All the while we know he does, and we do, because it's on that path, that path that leads by way of sin, the path that leads by way of unfaithfulness, that we begin to see more clearly the faithfulness of our God. And for Peter and for us, that makes all the difference when it comes to obeying his word. So let's think for a few moments about that story and about, in particular, the ways in which the story reveals how Peter's resolution failed, how our resolutions can fail. Peter's resolution is a reply to Jesus' prediction about the disciples falling away. Now, Jesus uh, is not saying that the disciples will, will permanently uh, deny Jesus and, and walk away from the faith. He's not suggesting that one's salvation can be lost, but Jesus is rather warning the disciples and predicting, telling them that they will, for a season, temporarily 
physically and in their hearts, depart from him. Physically, it happens in the garden when he is arrested that they all flee and scatter. In their hearts, it's a result of the crucifixion. When the shepherd is struck, their their hearts are thrown into confusion. Jesus' prediction is loaded with logical and divine wisdom. Jesus knows the disciples. He knows he can't trust them. Jesus knows the Old Testament and he quotes from it. He's got God's word backing his claim that Peter and the others are going to fail, that the shepherd would be struck, that the sheep would be scattered. And Jesus is God. He simply knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. Despite all of that, Peter takes him up. Peter says, no, no, I will not deny you. I will never fall away. I will never turn away. Peter throws the other disciples under the bus and says, they may all fall away, but I will not. Verse 29, Peter says to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. And so Jesus challenges him. He presses the issue further and he says, there are specific things, Peter, that you are going to do and I'm telling you them so that you will not miss it. You have to see this. You're going to deny me three times. There's a rooster that's going to crow twice. You are going to deny me. And Peter, being bold and foolish, rises again to the occasion in verse 31 and says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Which encourages the other disciples to say the same thing. Even unto death, the resolution is that they would be faithful. Now we don't know all the psychology behind Peter's statements. Uh, we don't know exactly why he said those things, but it sure smacks of a desire to prove himself to Jesus. It sure seems like he's trying to earn favor. It sure seems like he's trying to compete with the other disciples. And how many times in our lives, even as Christians, do we seek obedience to God and his ways, seek to not do things that we shouldn't and to, to walk in the ways of God's commandments that we should pursue out of desire to prove ourselves to God, to earn his favor, or worse of all, compete with each other. Our hearts are all twisted up when it comes to obeying God's commandments, and Jesus knows it. Jesus knows all the twists and turns of our hearts and how Peter's heart in this moment uh, was, was seeking something but wasn't submitting to God's clear word. Jesus knows all the, the claims of our hearts. Still, he goes to the cross. Peter's resolution failed after only a few hours. It only took him a matter of hours to, to walk out of that garden and then go to the chief priest's court and three times deny Jesus just as he said. It's, it's just a few verses down in chapter 14. Right at the end of the chapter, verse 66 tells the story. We won't read it now, but it only takes a couple hours. 
And so some of us might say, wow, I at least keep my resolutions for a day or a week or a month. This guy, Peter, he's a joke. But what matters is not how long we keep our resolutions, how long we avoid sin. What matters is, do we sin? Do we break our resolutions? Do we break God's commandments? And the answer universally is yes. We all do. I mentioned earlier about 50% of the U.S. population makes resolutions around New Year's time. Only 25% actually do something to, to actually accomplish that resolution. It means half of us will make a resolution, and half of those people won't do anything about it. They'll write it or think it, but never act to fulfill it. And of those who do act, only 8% report actually fulfilling consistently their resolution through a year. And that's self-reporting. So you've got to imagine it's at least 4%. Cut that in half. 4% at best keep their resolutions till December 31st. But what percentage of us keep our resolutions to the Lord? You might pause and say, well, I've never really made a resolution with God. I've never kind of said something really bold like Peter said about doing a specific thing. I've never, you know, sat down on New Year's Day or any other day and kind of committed myself to, to stop this certain sin or begin this certain practice. I've never made that kind of resolution. Well, the reality is that all of us are in a resolution with God whether we would admit it or not. Even if you are not a Christian, you are in a resolution with God. In the Bible, it's called a covenant. And God, creating you in his image, has made a covenant with you and called you to obedience to that covenant, to, for him to be your God and for you to walk in his ways. And so whether that resolution was something you came up with and wrote out or whether it's the universal resolution of God towards mankind, this covenant relationship, we all stand guilty. The success ratio is zero. Before our holy God, even just one sin is all it takes to be cut off and condemned. The good news, though, is that that's not the end of the story. Our failures and Peter's failures are not the end of the story. The story goes on for Peter and for us. In eternity past, the triune God himself made a resolution. A resolution that he would send his son to be a man made like us so that his son could go to the cross bearing the sin and the guilt and the shame of all of God's people. He made that resolution. Again, knowing that we would fail, knowing all the ways we would fail, all the scandal and heartbreak and corruption and rebellion, he made that plan. He's fulfilled that plan. You see it in miniature in the passage in Mark. If you look down at verse 27. I'll read the verses again, but think of them from the perspective of what Jesus is saying about himself, not just what he's saying about Peter. 
They reveal something about Jesus' actions and Jesus' plan. Verse 27 says, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is that shepherd. He has resolved to be struck down for us. In verse 28, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He's not just giving them information about where to meet up. He's telling them that he has resolved to die and to rise, that he will do it. It has been planned. It has been resolved. He is walking forward in this. And so why does Jesus tell the disciples this? Aren't there other things that he could be talking about on this night of his arrest, preparing for his trial and crucifixion? There's nothing more important. There is nothing more important for the disciples to see and to see clearly their sin, his plan of grace, their salvation. As Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The shepherd, becoming the lamb of God, dying for us and rising in triumph. You see it on the front of the pulpit here, the symbol of the lamb carrying the resurrection flag. It's on our pulpit. It's on these two windows to the side. It's on the cross behind me. It's the center of our faith is the cross of Christ, the Lamb of God slain, the Lamb of God raised for you. Faithless, rebellious sinners. And so the question that hangs in the air now and that hangs in our hearts every day of our lives is, do we see it? Do we admit it? Do we receive the free gift of eternal life that God has given to us in Jesus Christ? If you're here this morning and you have not done that, you don't know what it means to repent and to believe, come talk to me. Or any other uh, person here that you see with a name tag because they're a member of our church. And ask them about that. Pray that today would be the day of your salvation. So some might ask, well, Our resolutions fail, God succeeds, so why bother with this whole pursuit of faithfulness, this whole Christian life? If our failure is inevitable and God's grace in Jesus Christ is sure, why bother striving to be faithful? Why would I ever make a resolution where I'm seeking to to put sin to death and to live honorable lives as Peter has commanded us in this passage? Well, when your heart is changed by the grace of God and the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, when God's faithfulness is rooted in your heart in that way, you have seen the depths of your sins and the heights of Christ's righteousness and grace, you can't help but pursue faithfulness. You can't help pursue a life of obedience and gratitude to Him. 
When we see God's faithfulness to us in Jesus, our resolutions flourish and grow. They're never perfect, but they're resilient, consistent, and glorifying to God. God's faithfulness to us is the path towards our faithfulness to Him. Yes, the Bible speaks about the duty of obedience and the fear of God, but those things are guardrails on the path of obedience, keeping us in. The center lane is gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that we uh, can look at the season of Advent, which comes right before New Year's, and recognize that the church calendar being organized in this way is a very good thing. God comes to us first. Then we respond in grace and in obedience. There are a couple big ways of responding to God's grace to us, responding with, with lives of faithfulness. Number one, think about failure. No, it's not encouraging, but think about it just for a moment. When we fail, it's God's faithfulness to us that protects us from despair and keeps us on that path of faithfulness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells us, if we are faithless, he is faithful. Gospel logic isn't fair, but this is the way it works, by God's grace. And so when we fail, it is God's faithfulness again and again and again that refreshes us and restores us and propels us on the path of righteousness. This past summer, I had the privilege of uh, going to India and visited two grave sites. Two grave sites. The first was the Taj Mahal, where Shah Jahan buried his wife in the 17th century. Beautiful, amazing, ornate. The second was the burial site of the Apostle Thomas, it was kind of tacky, to be honest. <laughs> but there, a man buried who once doubted Christ, who once doubted the resurrection. A man buried carrying the gospel east, laying down his life along with every other apostle, Peter included, laying down his life in gratitude for what Christ had done. When we take up the Christian life, it is God's faithfulness that fuels our zeal and our obedience and our participation in the mission of God to redeem His people. There are a few practical expressions of, call them resolutions, uh, practical expressions of things we could do to, to help ourselves walk in obedience to God's Word. I'll just mention them briefly. But think about, uh, number one, worship. If you're seeking to, to live in this new year a life of obedience and glory to God, think about your, your participation in corporate worship. This is the most central, regular, significant thing we do as a church of Jesus Christ. To gather as saints to give Him praise, to pray together, sing together, and come under the preaching of His Word together. 
And so is that a strong, vital commitment for you? Next Sunday, we take communion together. Be here. Participate. Commit yourself to the means of grace. Think about your own reading of the Bible. There are dozens and dozens of Bible reading plans, ways of organizing uh, reading through Scripture, whether it's chronological or topical or uh, any other way. Tons of apps for that to help you engage with God's Word on a regular, focused, consistent basis. Think about how you pray. Think about service to the church and community. Think about relationships. Think about learning. Think about giving. There are endless ways that we can identify weaknesses in our own lives that need focused commitment, walking forward in gratitude for what God has done. We're going to close in just a moment, but before we close, I want us to flip back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 reminds us of the context of our pursuit of faithfulness and our pursuit of obedience. Peter uses a metaphor for the Christian life, for the environment and the life of the Christian. He uses the metaphor of warfare. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. How often do we think of the Christian life like that? Warfare? Are you kidding? But if you begin to think about your life as a Christian of the enemy's attacks and the world's attacks and your your own twisted heart's attacks against your soul and against your, your fixed gaze upon the glories of Jesus Christ and his word, it is a lot like warfare, whether you admit it or not. There's a war happening and I'm not a soldier, but I've seen enough war movies to make me dangerous, just intellectually, not physically. So if I'm going into battle, I know I need probably three things. I need a strategy. I need other soldiers with me. And I need some way of communicating back to base with leadership. You could take those things and think about your own spiritual warfare of the Christian life. Do you have a strategy for where you're going, what your objective is? Do you have brothers and sisters in, the Christ, in Christ who are walking with you in this church, in your family, in your community? You need them. And are you crying out to your king, your king of kings, your heavenly father in prayer? Above all else, are we praying? This year, 2017, is going to be a year for our church in which we, we recommit ourselves to that identity statement of being a prayerful people, of praying together bold and dependent prayers. Our prayer life is going to widen and deepen this year. But before anything else, before I or another pastor ask you to pray for something else, pray for this, the war that's happening in your own soul. Pray for God's grace. Pray for God's protection. Pray that petition of the Lord's prayer to to keep you from temptation and to deliver you from evil. And from Psalm 23, to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Pray 
Pray to God. Pray bold prayers. Ask for great things for your life in Christ this year. And pray dependent prayers, knowing that He and He alone is the one that can fulfill them. And may we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus, who is the friend of sinners and the forger of us as saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. More than that, we give you thanks for Jesus Christ. We thank you that in eternity past, you resolved to to treat us with grace and not justice. That you have sent Christ to us freely, beautifully, graciously, and have now called us to commit ourselves to him. Father, we pray that that this year would be a year in which we as a church and as families and as individuals grow in grace, walk in faithfulness, not out of pure duty, not out of a felt need to impress you or others, but in love and in worship for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ incarnate, crucified, raised, ascended, and returning. We ask that you would do these things for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.